0: Welcome to the PowerCast with Charlie Johnson. I'm one of the world's leading fitness and transformation coaches. I'm going to be providing you with the tools to build your ultimate body and mind. Pleasure to have Stan Efferding, the legend himself, on the PowerCast today. So thank you very much for um, joining today, Stan. So it's a pleasure I bumped into you at the Arnold in, obviously stateside earlier in the year. Um, it's nice to have a chat with you now. Lovely to have you on the podcast as well.
1: Thanks for having me, brother. I appreciate it.
0: Uh, obviously, there's a little bit of time difference, so it's nice and early over there in the states. So, um, I really, really appreciate again you having you on this morning. So, just for any of our listeners who aren't sure who you are, uh, a bit of a background. You've got a very, very interesting background, I think, which for me is why I personally am so fascinated with you. Is that you're obviously you've got a very strong business uh, acumen and background with what you do now, where you previously came from, and then also that you're obviously the world's strongest bodybuilder, uh, IFBB Pro, and you've got a ton of other accolades. So um, maybe if I let you talk a little bit about yourself and what you've achieved thus far.
1: Yeah, thanks. It's been a hell of a
0: roller coaster.
1: I started out uh, in college, uh, University of Oregon, got a Bachelor of Science. I studied psychology and exercise science. And then I uh, went on and started coaching and working with athletes. And of course I was competing throughout all that time. I started competing in 1986 actually and i've worked with some of the greatest coaches and athletes in the world and i'm fortunate for that i've learned a lot along the way
0: did you initially go into powerlifting first or bodybuilding
1: you know i was a small guy my first bodybuilding show i only weighed 158 pounds. and so i wasn't very strong so it took me many many years probably 10 years before i actually competed in powerlifting that's we pursued i you know, i lifted heavy weights thinking that that would make me big and i'm sure we'll talk more about that later but uh, so it was mostly bodybuilding to start and just lifting as heavy and as hard as I could to try and get bigger. Um, I learned a lot along the way. I've been fortunate. I had, you know, done very well in business. As you mentioned, I started a number of different companies that became very successful. And, uh, fortunately I had the opportunity to come back, uh, you know, after starting competing in 86 through about 97, I took 10 years off to work on my companies. And then, um, in, uh, 2006. I came back to competing, and by that time, of course, then I had the more knowledge, and I had more time, and I had more resources, and I was able to go out and train with some of the greatest athletes and coaches: uh, Flex Wheeler, Mark Bell, Eddie Cohn, just about every guru in the business that you can name. I've probably worked with them from uh, Palumbo to uh, Charles Glass to, you know, indirectly worked with Chris Sacedo and. Kai Green's old coach. Um, out, of, you know, out of
0: curiosity, what, what was your um, original business? Was one out of interest, was, was it something to do with like reclaim belts in airports or something? You
1: know, originally I, I started a company, it was a telecommunications company. I uh, yeah. uh, ran that in 22 states here in the US and, and then did real estate. I, I was a real estate developer, at least I worked under a developer as a young man. And then, uh, you know, I built multifamily and single family and commercial real estate and, and managed communities and, uh, so that was, you know, the first thing that I did. And then I, I transitioned into an engineering firm where we designed baggage handling systems for airports. Uh, I, was,
0: I was right. It wasn't just making that out of somewhere.
1: Yeah, that was, uh, you know, it's just been opportunities to I just pursued, you know, whatever financial opportunities were available. I uh, tried to create, uh, you know, an opportunity to make money. It wasn't exactly my passion in life which is why now I'm fortunate to be able, after all these many years, with the advent of the internet, uh, we can reach out to an international audience, and I can actually work in the field for which I had a passion for from the time I was a a young man in college, and that's been fantastic. So I I have been able to create a business now uh, with training and nutrition and and a meal prep company with the vertical diet and vertical meals that uh, allows me to, uh, to stay in the industry that I love, so. I'm working almost exclusively now in this industry as a coach and as a, uh, a meal provider, uh, and you know, a host of other avenues that allow me to to make a living in this industry.
0: With your um, progress, obviously, as you started off. Who was the who were the biggest influences? Who you think you learned? <clears throat>
1: Boy, looking back, probably you know, when you're reading the Wheeler magazines back in the <clears throat> late '80s and early '90s, of course, Flex Wheeler was one of the ones that. Uh, that I always aspired towards, and he, uh, you know, fortunately for me, I was able to work with him back in 2008 when I got my pro card. Uh, I was able to to go down to San Jose and spend a few months training with Flex every day, twice a day, and we're still friends today. He lives down the street from me, and we <clears throat> we train together regularly, and and have been for the last 10 years. So that was a, a huge opportunity for me. I learned an enormous amount and made. You know, we should talk a little bit today about the differences between the way I used to train, the way I train today, and the way I advise my clients, because, um, you know, I've done so many things wrong over the years. I didn't have the internet when I was in college, and, um, you know, you just listen to the guy behind the counter at Cold's Gym, and I got some of the worst advice, and I had to learn and we'll just have. by experience. And nowadays, you know, of course, there's so much great information out there. Obviously, there's it's a mixed bag with the internet, but there's definitely filtering to the top. There's some highly qualified, very well credentialed individuals that are also competing in, in uh, physique, figure, bikini, bodybuilding, and powerlifting and strongman who uh, have devoted their, uh, you know, academic uh, achievements towards their uh, performance achievements. And we're benefiting from all the information that they're putting out.
0: 100%. I'm curious to you, referred to um, training twice a day with Flex Wheeler. I've actually had the pleasure of spending the weekend with Milo Sarchev, uh, funnily enough. And he's obviously an advocate of twice a day training. How did you find training mm-hmm. twice a day compared to obviously your powerlifting is probably very, very different.
1: Yeah, very different. Uh, you know, and I, Milos is fantastic. I followed his writings for years and I had the opportunity to do a seminar with him here in Colorado earlier this year or at the end of last year, I think it was, uh, with Charles Poliquin before he passed, unfortunately. And Milos is, is uh, boy, he's an extraordinary resource. I'm glad you had the opportunity to work with him. Uh, that training twice a day, you know, it's interesting. And I saw a seminar a year ago where Alan Aragon uh, presented and the, he opened the seminar by saying the bros were right. And he was talking about a, a host of things that I think the better bodybuilders have learned over the years and kind of migrated towards. And one of them is the train every body part twice a week to train in the eight to 12 rep range. And then the twice a day training, uh, doing the splits, the AMPM splits also seems now, uh, to be one of the, the better, Um, training programs to optimize hypertrophy. Uh, We see that volume and frequency uh, supersede load and intensity in terms of progress. And I think that the splits give us the opportunity to train kind of a little bit shorter of a workout, maybe uh, under an hour, uh, to split the body parts up so you can uh, prioritize them a little better. And uh, you can stimulate all of those hormones that, that are so critical in, uh, initiating the, um, the supercompensation response for hypertrophy. And if, and if you can increase the frequency and volume, uh, without, uh, undergoing, you know, or creating too much fatigue so that you don't recover, uh, which generally happens with those heavier loads, uh, and
0: too, trend, isn't it?
1: yes. And to and beyond failure is another way to create too much fatigue to recover from. Now we're learning that If you can just get to within a rep of failure, kind of like feel the pump, Arnold talked about it in the 70s. And here we are all these many years later with the research supporting the fact that um, if you can get within a rep or two of failure, that's an adequate stimulus for maximal muscle fiber recruitment so that you can get um, all the hypertrophy benefit necessary and you don't necessarily need to go to failure. And that wasn't something I preached for the first 20 years of my competing. I was the guy who not only would go to failure, but would have somebody drag a rep or two off of my chest. And that, uh, you know, that seems to be kind of old knowledge now.
0: Out of curiosity, did you find that when you switched the training, you found your mm. joint integrity improved and you felt generally better, Like less than you had been hit by a bus because you weren't mm. trying to deadlift and squat the world as, as often as you probably were before.
1: Oh, a hundred percent. It's one of the things I, I try and uh, focus on. I didn't squat one time or deadlift one time when I trained with Flex Wheeler for many months. Um, because we were focused strictly on hypertrophy and we wanted to be cautious about how much damage we did, about how much joint damage we did, about how much, um, central nervous system overload, <clears throat> particularly with respect to the lumbar spine with squatting, you start hitting the lumbar hard with, uh, with heavy squats and heavy deadlifts, you're gonna have a hard time recovering overall. And so, uh, Flex's motto, I think that he got from Lee Haney before him was stimulate don't annihilate. We used a little higher repetitions, which uh, uh, Flex is a huge proponent of. We did the 20 reps, although I, I must say the literature suggests that that the eight to 12 is is, uh, is optimal in terms of hypertrophy stimulus while minimizing fatigue. The 20s were pretty fatiguing, but having said that, we didn't uh, we didn't crush ourselves on the 20s. We we uh, we would do some single leg leg extensions for muscle memory, uh, um, and then we would go to say a leg press, and then we would kind of We would exert ourselves pretty hard on the leg press and do those 20s. But then we went to the hack squat. You know, we were mostly working for a pump for a full range of motion, trying to get a good stretch in the muscle, and then finish with maybe some one-legged box step-ups or some lunges or more stretching. That stretching is a key component. It was interesting. Flex talked to me about that 10 years ago. In between sets of leg presses, he would make me squat down. And he would only rest us for about 90 seconds. So the loads weren't as heavy, obviously, with those rest periods. Um, but I experienced a lot more hypertrophy. My legs got the biggest they ever were. I had more fullness throughout my whole body, uh, doing that type of training with a, a, a slightly lesser rest period, uh, which uh, of course made it so that you were a little bit fatigued when you started your nest set. So you couldn't lift as much. You weren't doing as much actual damage. The eccentric loading wasn't tearing up the muscle as, as badly. So you'd recover a little faster. They didn't take you weren't sore for four days. You know, you. Um, did, and, did you find out is,
0: curiosity that type of training kept you a bit leaner as well? Oh, a hundred percent. That was another huge
1: component to it is we didn't have to do any cardio. It's fascinating.
0: I, I've, I've changed my training to very much like well, at least two days a week. I do a double session now, just like schedule depending. And I've noticed that already, like I'm staying so much leaner. I'm full. Yeah, of you wake up the next cardio. morning with
1: veins in your abs because you, you, you know, the epoch is certainly a, a scientific explanation for the excess post exercise oxygen consumption from those high intensity sets. Uh, we didn't do any cardio. Now historically when I bought would compete in bodybuilding, I would employ the traditional, you know, 40 minutes a day or maybe more as the show got closer of cardio, I would restrict my diet. I would uh, take out some foods, uh, you know, the ones that everybody tends to take out, your dairy and your red meats and uh, maybe some yolks out of your and not eat any fruits and all the mistakes that I think are made uh, today, uh, I used to do them. And I would lose a lot of muscle, I would get lean, but I would lose size. Uh, the cardio stimulus is contrary to hypertrophy. It's uh, it's not consistent with the training stimulus. And I don't think it's a good way to burn fat or to burn calories. I think it, uh, it sends the wrong message to the body and it doesn't know how to adapt. You certainly don't want to do it within you know, many hours of the actual hypertrophy training session. If you're going to do any cardio at all, you'd want to do it on a different day or at least six hours later. But I don't recommend any cardio at all for any of my athletes. I'm working with Nadia Wyatt, who took second in the Arnold and third in the Olympia. She hasn't done one stitch of cardio, and she's getting leaner than ever. And uh, I'm sure we'll dive into diet, but I made some significant changes to her diet as well and let her keep things in there that I used to take out that I don't anymore.
0: I'm going to guess already it's a lot of that inflammatory foods.
1: Yeah, you know, just demonizing things like red meat, like whole eggs, like fruit, like salt. uh, Those things are critical uh, for uh, things like iron and B12 and choline for the liver and uh, fruit for the metabolism, increasing the body temperature, um, uh, helping the liver convert T4 to T3. All of those things that we've traditionally taken out Uh, I don't take out. Flex had me eating damn near four pounds of steak a day. I was training twice a day. I was 265 pounds, and so certainly I was utilizing it. Um, But the iron and B12 in particular, especially for women, they end up restricting. They use egg whites, and they use chicken breast, and they end up with anemia. And uh, they end up having amenorrhea, which is the cessation of the menstrual period. Then their thyroid slows, and they don't have adequate... excuse me they don't have adequate uh, biotin for their skin hair and nails their hair starts falling out Uh, all of these things happen because of these restrictive diets they're told to take all of these foods out they're not adding salt back in they've stopped eating fast foods and packaged foods and now they're not adding salt back in so they're sodium depleted uh, and in particular iodine depleted and they need iodine for their thyroid that's triiodothyronin and for their immune system And this is why they get sick and they get tired and they get hungry, and they lose their muscle, and they have these uh, horrible health, adverse health effects, and end up at the doctor's office getting shots of iron and B twelve and D three. Uh, you know,
0: this is why they tend to rebound a lot of them very heavily after shows as well, isn't it?
1: <laughs> oh, it's extraordinary. It's terrible. So uh, I avoid all of those things with myself and with my clients now. It was a lesson that was hard learned over many years of of having done all of those those you know, those over-restrictive, over-cardio preps for for bodybuilding.
0: Because I know you're um, an advocate of using <clears throat> walking at short walks to help with digestion after eating meals. Is that something you'd advocate first thing in the morning, perhaps, for the first meal? Or
1: Oh, I'm glad you asked about it, 100%. That's what I do with my clients. And whether you're dieting for figure physique bikini or whether you're a strong man or a powerlifter or an NFL football lineman, I work with all of them, uh, we do the 10 minute walks and it's not necessarily for, uh, uh for fat burning. It's uh, certainly to elevate the heart rate, but mostly it's for insulin sensitivity and for digestion, uh, to improve your joints. Uh, you know, all your joints are synovial joints and they need movements in order to get oxygen into those tendons and ligaments and uh, the college, the collagenous structures that that can't be done. Uh, because there's no capillary, uh, in the, in those joints. There's, like there is in the muscles. And so I encourage a lot of movement frequently throughout the day. I encourage three 10-minute walks a day. And for the bigger guys, I might put them on a recumbent bike and have them do a little bit of 10 minutes of biking, if not a little modest hit session because there's no eccentric loading on a recumbent bike. And it it just pumps tons of blood in the body. Helps definitely, you know, through the mTOR pathways, you you, uh, uptake glucose from the bloodstream without the need of insulin. So you don't have as high of an insulin response to eating and it doesn't last as long. Uh, so those, all those things, and the digestion in particular, um, are benefits for my athletes. Whether they're dieting, whether they're a 130-pounder getting ready for a bikini show, or a 400-pounder like Hofthor, that's all the cardio I have them do. And if they do a brisk walk, and they swing their arms, and they get their heart rate elevated, um, they can certainly achieve you know, a, a, an adequate VO2 max uh, to, to provide all of the cardiovascular benefits that's ever been measured to give you any um, you know, any longevity benefit. So I don't believe in the longer sessions unless you're specifically an athlete that has to run a 5K or a 10K. Um, I think you can get plenty of HIIT training from uh, some of your shorter rest sets in hypertrophy training or when you can get all the benefits of uh, good digestion and insulin sensitivity from three 10-minute walks a day.
0: Yeah, I agree. That's something personally I've uh, implemented myself the last few months is uh, like well, walking fasted first thing in the morning for at least 30 minutes, obviously a bit longer than you're recommending. I just find even like cognitive function and everything, <laughs> almost just, like blood flow around the brain helps you just think oh, it's it's first thing in the day.
1: And I guess the only reason I say three 10 minute walks as opposed to one thirty is because I'm, I'm a big advocate of the frequency. If you can walk 30 in the morning and then logically
0: minutes, for digestion, it makes more sense.
1: For digestion, it makes huge sense. Immediately following a meal, post-parandial uh, uh, glucose in the bloodstream is, uh, is definitely mitigated. The amount of insulin that's released and the duration under which it's being released is, is uh, drastically reduced. But I like the frequency of it, uh, the, the frequency of movement. If you can, not too many people are going to comply with a 40-minute treadmill session at the end of the day after work. But the vast majority of people can find the time, and and it's certainly sustainable, to get three 10-minute walks. You can put your kids' breakfast on the table in the morning, take a 10-minute walk, and come back and take them to school. You can go to work and at lunchtime have a lunch and, and then take a walk around your office building. I do it at airports. I do it at hotels. You can even go to a restaurant at night and eat and then walk out the door and set your clock for five minutes and just walk down the street. When the alarm goes off, turn around and walk back to your car. It's something that anybody can do. That's more sustainable. Than you can I do it anywhere
0: and in the world as well. There's, there's no excuse for that.
1: There isn't really. And even Hofthor up in Iceland, when it's snowing in the winter time, <clears throat> when I was up there visiting him, <clears throat> sorry, we went to. Um, uh, he had a bike, a couple bikes in his garage, and we would eat and go out, and we'd ride the bike in the garage and watch some videos on on uh, YouTube or on the internet or whatever. And he would do that three times a day. He's incredibly disciplined. And I found that it, it, it has had major benefits. Um, kind of to transition while we're talking about Hofthor, I mentioned that people who diet, uh, you know, figure physique bikini people, end up experiencing metabolic adaptation, which we're all familiar with. And that can be more or less severe based on the type of diet you're on and the type of training that you do. Well, people who are big who try and gain weight and muscle, you know, linemen in football, uh, people like Hofthor, pro strongmen, power lifters, and just they're for anyone who doesn't know,
0: Hathor the uh, World's Strongest Man, or he won World's Strongest Man, is in The Mountain in Game of Thrones? So it's anyone who's not yes. sure who we're referring to.
1: Yes, and, uh, and Brian Shaw as well. I work with him. And uh, Brian Oberst, uh, or Robert Oberst, I work with him. Uh, some of the, the biggest
0: human beings game. on the planet then, pretty much.
1: Some of the largest guys on the planet, and they're not really interested in losing weight. And so I have to mitigate some of those health concerns. I do that in a, in a number of different ways. They tend to experience, as I have, again, in my past, I I dieted for bodybuilding shows down to 4% body fat, and I experienced all of the the adverse effects of over-restriction at times throughout my historical career, which I've since remedied. Uh, But I've also bulked up to well over 300 pounds to compete in powerlifting, and I've done that many different ways throughout my career. And uh, oftentimes, it would be a dirty bulk, and sometimes it would be the gallon of milk a day diet the go mad. Uh, And I would get blood tests just about every month at least for the last 10 years that I was competing and I could see uh, the the effects of uh, What we call metabolic syndrome fatty liver disease increased blood pressure Increased blood sugars hemoglobin a1c up into the pre-diabetic range This is the kind of thing I see with my larger athletes who have been using these dirty bulks these pizza pasta pancakes style diets to get themselves uh you know to to eat enough to stay and to maintain the kind of weight and strength that they need to compete now i can't shrink them down and put them on a vegetarian diet and expect turn them, to them vegan overnight them. no I, I have to i have to rebuild them uh, i have to improve their blood pressure and their blood sugars um
0: I, I would imagine their... is blood pressure quite an issue with chaps who are that size because it's oh, a 100%. common common problem i imagine once you're, just, you're pushing that sort of weight mm-hmm. body weight wise i'd I imagine some of their blood pressures are pretty high, I'm not sure I try and get that down. A hundred
1: percent. And it was very publicly I, with Mark Bell, we went through where his blood pressure was 196 over 100 at one point and he was 320 some pounds and uh, his family was worried about him. So here's what I do, you know, health first. Now, mind you, I, I did a video called, if you want to be healthy, don't compete. Uh, because uh, being healthy and being fit are two different things, of course. Uh, health in terms of longevity but fitness uh, you know being able to compete at a high level might not always be healthy and so my job is really to mitigate the damage that you're doing to your body um, in order to compete at a high level in any sport And this could include something like gymnastics where 12 year old girls are getting surgeries for you know wrists and ankles knees Um, this isn't just exclusive to to huge athletes it can be just about anybody who um endeavors to to compete at a high level and undergoes a significant amount of stress even marathon runners who you would think would be the uh, you know the fittest people on the planet in the 50s they start dropping from uh, you know a thin and overgrown heart muscle so uh just generally speaking i I'll, I'll focus on the guys that have the high blood pressure and they have the high blood sugars and the fatty liver disease uh initially of course um in order to get the blood pressure down one of the biggest contributors to that is sleep apnea at that weight and uh so I get make sure these guys get cpaps and they start to remedy the sleep apnea that can take 20 uh millimols off your systolic blood pressure in a very short period of time just within a matter of days or a week um, you can see the results like that i get somebody presenting with 160 systolic blood pressure that might go down to the low 140s just from implementing the use of a cpap because they have apnea.
0: Funnily enough, uh, I, I had something similar, like towards end of last year, but it was stress related, but my blood pressure was pretty high. 150, 160. And, uh, I've managed, I've now got that down to 120. But, um, like one of the things I started using was on the recommendation of a, a chap who helps me. Dr. Dean is, uh, using nasal strips to open up my ears yes. when I sleep. And that has literally changed my life.
1: Yes, yeah, sleep in general. If there's one thing that I focus on first, I you know, recently started working with Lane Johnson from the Philadelphia Eagles. He wasn't wearing his CPAP. He's 325 pounds. So I flew out there and, and just we got him a new mask and reprogrammed his CPAP so that it was comfortable for him to wear. That had a dramatic impact almost immediately on his blood pressure and his energy levels. So uh, I did that with Hoffman. Did that with Shaw. I did that with Dan Green. All of those guys did not have CPAPs. They all snored. They woke up tired. That's where I start, and it has a really significant impact on blood pressure.
0: What's I know people end, talk about. What's your thoughts on like, using devices to monitor sleep, like the uh, Uro Ring out of interest? I uh, of
1: I'm not sure. I've I've seen much respect, uh, uh, or or uh, I think anything that can that can make you focus on it.
0: It makes you aware of it almost.
1: Make you aware of it think something as simple as weighing in in the morning you know, makes you more aware of your, your nutrition, taking your uh, weekly pictures or anything that helps you track your diet that can improve your, your, your uh, results from dieting. And I think the same thing's true of sleep. If you, I have a, a CPAP that's uh, it's called a dream station, and it tracks how much you sleep and, and it uh, uh, also tracks things like your, uh, the amount of pressure how many episodes you had if you held your breath during the night. So anything that you can use that at least gets you to pay attention, it has a greater impact because maybe you'll start to try and get to bed on time more often. Maybe you'll turn off your electronics an hour or two before bedtime. Maybe you'll work on uh, sleep hygiene, like getting a darker room or a quieter room or having the temperature right. Uh, you know, de-stressing before you go to bed. Dr. <clears throat> Uh, Who am I thinking of here? Um, uh, Stasha Gominak uh, has a a website for drgominak.com. She's a sleep specialist. And Dr. Matthew Walker is another one who was on Joe Rogan, has some excellent stuff that talks about using things like a stress journal, uh, a worry journal before bed to sit down and write down everything that's on your mind so you can just set it on the end table and offload it so you can sleep and not worry about it. It'll be there in the morning. Uh, the little things like that, getting adequate magnesium, 400 milligrams of magnesium, uh, usually before bed is is advisable. And even something like taking a warm shower has been shown to cool the core, which uh, benefits sleep. So all of those things, uh, if people can start paying attention to their sleep, uh, it has a dramatic impact, as we mentioned, on blood pressure, uh, also on blood sugars, also on testosterone. I get a number of uh, Uh, people working for the fire department, young men in their 20s with testosterone in the tank, down 150, 180 testosterone levels, because they don't sleep. And and when they do sleep, they don't sleep for very long. And they kind of uh, chop it up into little three-hour segments. And uh, that is not beneficial for your testosterone levels or your thyroid function. And then women who get up at 4 a.m. to do cardio after five hours of sleep, uh, their it's
0: almost ironic, I find that situation. They're probably better off sleeping for two hours longer 100%. than actually doing the cardio in the first place.
1: Yes. And Dr. Matthew Walker talks about this in his research as well. You end up losing more muscle than fat. Your body becomes stingy with the fat as it, uh, it's because you're starving it of sleep. And so those morning cardio sessions are definitely, you're stepping over $100 dollar bills to pick up nickels, as I've said many times before. So that's where I start. I start with sleep with all of my athletes. Um, and if I, can, if I can get them to sleep more, they get leaner, their blood sugars improve, their blood pressure improves, their ability to hold on to muscle tissue improves. What
0: would you if, say is the, the goal of- in terms of ideal amount of sleep for a performance athlete? Or just someone- One more time. What would you say is the, the optimal amount of sleep that someone should be looking for? Uh,
1: it's a range kind of dependent upon your workload. Seven to nine hours is kind of a safe range. Some people are competing at a very high level and training twice a day, crossfitters and strong men and the like. When I was bodybuilding, I was north of nine hours at night, and then I would take a 30-minute nap every day as well. And the naps shouldn't be too late in the day, and they probably shouldn't be over 30 minutes because then you fall into REM sleep and you wake up groggy. But those are tools. And a nap will never take place of uh, extending your sleep into the seven- to nine-hour range. If you only sleep five hours and think you can get an hour, an hour and a half of sleep in the afternoon, it does not make up for the lack of duration because your your restorative sleep cycles get longer and longer at night the longer you sleep. If you only sleep five hours, you're not spending much time in your stage three and stage four restorative sleep. So the length of sleep is what matters most.
0: So that's the most quality, good quality, decent length of time. Did you find when you start paying attention to that, it made a big, big difference for you? <clears throat>
1: Oh, it makes a huge difference, and I also experienced this, and you had mentioned some about talking about my during my years in business when I was running companies, i'd started a number of different startup companies, and like most people, you end up diving in, sacrificing sleep, burning the candle at both ends, sleeping four or five hours a night, and trying to work sixteen, eighteen hours a day. When I did that, I found that my health deteriorated significantly. I had more stress, more anxiety, I had lower I had poor performance. Um, and so at some point when I felt like things weren't going well, uh, I was trying to figure out how to manage stress. And as it turns out, I was just so weak. I look at stress as weight on a bar. And if you've got, you know, 200 pounds of weight on the bar and you're a 100-pound bench presser, it's going to finish you few, you better. Better. But if you're a 300-pound bench presser, you're going to be repping that thing out all day long. And the thing that, uh, that, uh, man, the thing that most impacts your strength and I'm talking now in terms of stress and your ability to deal with stress are the fundamentals like sleep, exercise, and nutrition. And I found that when I was most stressed and I was suffering from anxiety uh, at the time that I wasn't getting enough sleep, I wasn't eating very well, and I had rarely exercised. I didn't even have a membership to the gym.
0: Do you also eating. find your, I'm curious, your body fat percentage tends to sit higher at <laughs> that level as well because... A hundred percent. That's something yeah. I noticed personally with myself and clients, ones who who tend to have the most stressful lives tend to struggle the most in terms of getting the fat off. And then because they're not progressing, they stress more and it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy.
1: It is. And then what we do is we run around trying to find ways to mitigate stress. And I don't think that's the correct way to go about it. I think that that's the wrong direction. I think that you're managing symptoms instead of uh, the cause. And you know, we're doing things like trying to, to minimize stress. If you're a businessman trying to be successful, you don't want to minimize stress. You want to be able to absorb more because that's where more money is made. You, you can't make money without stress. It doesn't happen. That's, so, that's a
0: brilliant saying. I've never heard that before.
1: <laughs> that's Yeah, they go hand in hand. This you know, is true. I agree you. The more stress you're there. able to take on, you know, the, the faster, the more you're able, to greater the load, the more money you can potentially make. And, and the more effective you are at it. And so really what I do is I just go in and, and immediately – uh, sleep is the first thing. If I've got to throw a CPAP at them, if they're snoring and tired, or just get more hours out of them, and then the three 10-minute walks because they're sustainable. Anybody can do them. If you're too busy to go to a gym, that's fine. You, nobody's too busy to take a tour around the, the neighborhood in the morning or at lunchtime or right before bed. And then the diet. And in many cases, well, this has been been studied extensively. The most successful dieters are the ones that meal prep. And whether you prep or you, you purchase from a company that preps, of course I do, but uh, Uh, You know, I own a prep company, so it's easy for me to have my own meals shipped to me everywhere I go. I take them with me when I travel. Uh, I I, I fly out just about every weekend. I'm in a different city. I was in 10 countries and 40 states in the last year, and I travel with my food. I take some uh, little 24-ounce thermos with hot meals in them. If I fly to Canada, I've got three of them. If I fly to the UK, I've got five of them. Whatever it takes. When I leave the house in the morning, I've got what I need to feed me until I'll be back in you know, into the kitchen.
0: No, excuse and then I,
1: I'll pack a dozen frozen meals. I, went to, I was in Washington, D.C. for seven days last week at the NSCA's uh, National Strength and Conditioning Association's conference. and I put uh, 35 meals into a rolling Coleman cooler, strapped it shut, and checked it onto the plane. And so When I got off the plane and got to my hotel room, which was an Airbnb with a kitchen, Uh, if you don't have that, then certainly you should stay someplace with a a microwave and a fridge. I travel with all of my meals. And so I had everything I needed to eat. I woke up in the morning and I heated up my breakfast and I heated up a couple other lunches that I put in my thermos. And I went off to eight or 10 hours worth of seminars all day. And I never missed a meal. I ate on time the foods I wanted to eat that were good for my stomach. Uh, And that's one way that I manage, um, uh, you know, business people or even athletes like Hofthor and Shaw. One of the things I do with them is I manage the logistics. I work together with their wives to create grocery lists. I get, uh, If I'm helping them at a certain venue, like the World's Strongest Man in Florida or the uh, Arnold in, in Columbus, Ohio, I get there a day early and I go shopping at Costco and I get them everything they need and I help prepare it. Um, those are the things that are most important. If I thought there was something I could do for Shaw or half or that was more important than prepping their meals than I'd do it. But there isn't.
0: It's interesting so, you, you say that, obviously, about their wives as well. I think a lot of people maybe underestimate the importance of like a support network around the individual? Because it's not just that person, but the people around them who support them makes so much difference.
1: Oh, 100%. And those support network, and we saw this, of course, when you read the book like The Millionaire Next Door, and, and the most successful people tend to uh, be married and have you know a pretty uh, established lifestyle. Uh, and, and a lot of that is, again, just being organized uh, and having things like regular sleep schedule, regular exercise schedule, regular meals. It's, it's just like fuel or oil in your car. Uh, you as a businessman or as an athlete, those things have to be managed. And when you miss a night of sleep or get poor sleep from apnea, or you miss a meal or two, or you have to eat some shitty airport food and you, you get Diarrhea and and, you know brain fog from horrible food. That has a serious impact on performance, both in competitive athletics and in the business world. Particularly for these people who travel a lot, who don't uh, have access to to consistent, regular uh, food, and they're eating stuff at uh, at hotels, getting up in the morning and eating their breakfast buffet, which is you know full of sausages and those uh, vegetable oil infested. Egg, whatever they, yeah, they call it, good. you know <laughs> that stuff is horrible on the gut, and they it it uh, you know it manifests itself in all kinds of different health problems. The brain fog is is the just the the slightest of them.
0: I think the, the inflammation as well that comes from a lot of heavily processed foods is a major issue as well.
1: Absolutely, and then all the autoimmune disorders that arise as a result, and people start taking antacids to try and manage their their acid reflux and then they're not absorbing their micronutrients anymore because they have no stomach acid and they end up with deficiencies in magnesium and calcium and a host of other uh, important micronutrients so it's just a a, a, a completely uh, unsustainable method of, of trying to to perform
0: when um so working with obviously the bigger athletes it's really in particular you look at first in and then after obviously you've addressed sleep you then go move on to like I oh, always fascinate in terms of the volume of food they have. Do you have any tactics alongside the walks to try and help with yeah, digestion? Let's, let's take a deeper dive
1: into that. Let's take a deeper dive into that. So, these big athletes, first, I mitigate sleep, which helps a lot with some of their health problems. Uh, if they have high blood pressure, uh, secondarily, we want to get adequate potassium into them. Um, uh, oftentimes, it's, uh, it's uh, impacted by thyroid function as well. It's much more significant than, than sodium could ever be as a contributor. Uh, poor sleep will cause thyroid problems as well, hypothyroidism. So if I can get more sleep and I can get them to start eating a healthier diet, um, we've got to take some weight off them initially. If they've got fatty liver and they've got uh, those problems, I've got to take a little weight off them initially. Hofthor came to me. He was 435 pounds. He said he was gaining more fat than muscle and he wasn't getting any stronger. So I took about 40 pounds off of him. I took about 20 pounds off of Shaw. Uh, and we just did that with some 10-minute walks, a little bit of dieting. Of course, we had the time. We weren't right before a, a, you know, a competition because so, you're going to lose a little strength with weight. Hopefully not much. Uh, the way that I diet people, I, I, one of the things that they realize is that they don't lose much strength. So,
0: Would you look uh, at just taking their overall calories down or would it be carbohydrates, fats?
1: Uh, overall calories, generally fats. Uh, most of these guys are eating too much fats, and uh, because they need a lot of calories, and uh, it's part of the problem. And and I'll talk about how I redesigned their diet to allow them to to bulk back up without getting too fat. So first, I'll drop some weight off of them, and that has a huge impact on blood pressure as well. It's probably one uh, millimole per pound. If I take 20 pounds off of somebody, they're gonna their systolic blood pressure is gonna go down another 20 points. So between the apnea. Uh, and the weight loss, we can get them from 160 to 120 in just a matter of 30 days. Uh, and then the blood sugars is another big one, uh, and the fatty liver disease. Unfortunately, uh, you can't really test for fatty liver disease by getting a blood test and looking at AST, ALT. You actually do have to get uh, you have to look at a sonogram reading uh, from an ultrasound uh, to see if they have fatty liver. Now that can be fixed. Uh, the liver will repair itself. So first of all, you you, you drop the weight off of them. Then you've got to introduce uh, plenty of choline and vitamin B12 and folate into their diet. And oddly enough, and it sounds counterintuitive, that means egg yolks and red meat. Egg yolks are high in choline, red meat's high in B12. Uh, So I reintroduce those things, obviously, within the confines of the calorie uh, restriction. So their fatty liver will heal itself. And that is definitely something that, that I've had great success with. Their blood sugars might be up in, say, the um, the pre-diabetic range, and we get those down so they're, you know, the readings here would say like 5.8, 5.9 to be pre-diabetic. I got Hofthor down to 5.1 at uh, 395 pounds. Then we started putting weight back on him. Um, again, initially the diet was I, I minimized fats mostly. I kept the uh, proteins, lean proteins, generally from red meats. We go with a top sirloin. Uh, I keep fruit in the diet because it stimulates metabolism. I keep the eggs in the diet because of the choline.
0: Was there Um, any particular type of fruit you you prefer giving them? Any
1: juicy fruit. It could be uh, oranges or melons or berries, Uh, any juicy fruit. And I don't do a ton of it. I just put in half an orange three times a day. Uh, It increases body temperature. It helps uh, with the liver. Uh, I found that it can reduce AST and ALT enzymes, particularly for athletes that are using performance-enhancing drugs like orals. Um, a better option is to also add in TUTCA and NAC, n cysteine, if you're really trying to tackle um, high AST, ALT enzymes in liver. But nonetheless, that uh, also helps them uh, maintain their appetite because uh, eating enough food is, is difficult for these big athletes. I get potassium in there, and that's, again, the fruit, the, a daily potato at least, a potato daily. Those are big for potassium. Some daily yogurt. Calcium is huge. Uh, you don't want to supplement your calcium. That has been shown to increase cardiovascular disease, whereas calcium from dairy sources can decrease cardiovascular disease. Oh,
0: and improve... What's your take on um, whey isolates and whey protein powders in terms of usage? Would you always favor whole foods?
1: I favor whole foods. I, if you're getting adequate protein, there's really no need for a, a, a protein powder. it's so just a very, very common question. Food, yeah, yeah. If you're at a calorie significant calorie deficit, um, I'm still shooting for whole foods. If you can, because of the micronutrient value, you don't get iron and B12 and selenium and zinc from uh, whey protein supplements. That's not to say that they're not convenient and don't taste good, and you can use them post workout if you want as part of a, a recovery shake or something like that. That's fine, but I certainly wouldn't replace meals with them when you had the option to eat. I think in a good, better, best scenario. Best is the food, Uh, and supplements can uh, can help augment a deficient meal or help replace uh, a meal that you're not unable to get. It's really just so that's kind of where I am with the subs. I really don't recommend any supplements to any of my athletes, other than say vitamin D three and magnesium, which are hard to get from the diet, because most of my athletes are eating enough food. If you're a big athlete, you're certainly eating enough food. If you're a small athlete, 130 pounder that's uh, that's dieting for a bikini show, then uh, you actually need the food. Which you probably shouldn't be supplementing because you're gonna you have less of a chance to get adequate micronutrients when you're on a 1,500 calorie diet. And also, whole means, foods
0: to be a lot more filling for you,
1: and it's be more filling. And you're gonna need that iron and the you know, with, like I said, with the whole eggs, the choline and the biotin for your skin, hair, and nails. You're going to need the B12, and you can't get that from. I don't think it's it's smart to get that from a supplement. I think you're going to want to get it from whole foods. So, I guess to redirect back to, Hofthor and Shaw. Whenever I get them uh, get them fit, uh, I get the the body fat off of them, and I get their liver uh, improved, and I get their uh, blood sugars improved. Now I got to take them back up because they got to get under a 1,300 pound yoke, and they need to be as strong as possible for that. So I eliminate the pizza pasta pancakes, and I keep the lean meats in there. I try and keep fats at about 0.3 grams per pound, just to make sure they've got their AD,E and K and their shuttling nutrients. Now I drive white rice through the roof. After I get their fruit and their potato and their yogurt in there for the potassium, I'm driving calories with white rice. They both take in 1,200 grams, or almost 5,000 calories a day, of white rice. Super easy to digest. Doesn't cause them any, any issues with uh, with digestion, and they can eat a ton of it without getting bloated. If I try and put that much oatmeal or bread,
0: it's too much fiber,
1: yeah, or even too much fiber, uh, they'll their body won't be able to handle it, and they'll start to to get massive bloating, diarrhea, all kinds of problems. So that's probably and as you know, for these big athletes, football players, CrossFit strongmen. Their workload is extraordinary. They need that fuel. And you know, I'll use this word because um, uh, it's true. When you're using lots and lots and lots of carbohydrates, they're anabolic in that they draw glycogen, uh, form glycogen in the muscle, and they'll bring three to four parts water for every part glycogen and sodium. And all of those things create an extraordinary environment for anaerobic exercise and the fuel necessary for uh, th- that kind of work in the muscle. It's optimal.
0: With, um, so with, with your large athletes like that, would you give them six whole meals a day then of solid meats and no shakes, anything at all like that?
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm pushing solid meals. I, yeah. You know, I just from personal experience. It's, it was really difficult to gain or maintain a significant amount of weight on shakes.
0: It's, it's interesting what you say about the, um, the carbohydrates skin, because obviously, as referred to as Mila Sarsha over the last few days, she's been banging the drums for the carbohydrate uh, brigade, which I agree with completely. And um, well, I think people are afraid of carbs, I think.
1: Yeah, there is. A, a, you know, and if you've got a, a, an obese, diabetic client who overeats, and they tend to overeat carbs, then restriction of carbs might be advisable. Uh, A calorie deficit, regardless of the percentage of carbs and fat, a calorie deficit with adequate protein has been proven to to, uh, be equally beneficial, whether you're high fat, low fat, high carb, low carb. Uh, That was the Diet Fits trial out of Stanford with 600 people for over a year. When you control for calories and protein, where you move carbs and fats doesn't really matter. You get significant, you get the same weight loss. And also, it doesn't have any differential effect on insulin. The problem is, is that when you get somebody uh, who's, who tends to eat too many carbs, that's, that's where you want to help them comply. And so I, I'll pull carbs out of their diet uh, just because they tend to overeat them. That's really the only reason.
0: Cool. And in terms of training programs, is there any tips in terms of recovery for them which you, you work with in terms of the nutrition side of things you find work particularly well? It's like, again, something it was interesting that uh, Milos was bringing up was talking about taking an extra essential amino acids between the main meals.
1: Yeah, you know, I haven't gone there. I, Milos is 100% on, on track with respect to the, the carbohydrates around workouts. It tends to minimize uh, fatigue and muscle damage when you have more carbohydrates. And I'll even go so far as to say you're utilizing some sugars uh, and two sugars. And this is consistent with the work, the um, NSCA's work and the recommendations by the ISSN, the International Society of Sports Nutrition. When you take in two different carbohydrate sources, let's say a glucose and a fructose or a dextrose and a maltodextrin, it really doesn't matter. When you take in two separate carbohydrate sources, you double- the uh, rate of uptake and absorption of those carbohydrates. When you add sodium to that mix, you triple it. And when you add caffeine to that mix, almost quadruple the rate of uptake and absorption, which is very important for people who are training twice a day. That would be critical for UFC fighters and uh, CrossFitters, etc. You absolutely would want to utilize that technique, putting together all four of those around a workout. It minimizes fatigue and damage, so you can recover faster. And that second workout of the day, just your energy levels would be extraordinary. And I've, I've seen this happen over and over again with my athletes. So carbs around workouts, that would be a time that timing.
0: Could you give a like, practical application of how, for example, you'd set that up with one of your clients with okay, a mixture of carbohydrates? Would that just be within the intra-workout drink? You'd have a, a two different carb sources as an example?
1: Yeah. Let me go through that very specifically. might call it a para workout drink I don't like to suck down a whole lot of carbs before I train it tends to impact my uh, breathing I I get under a squat set and I I don't think I I can uh, yeah I feel bloated my cardiovascular doesn't seem to be as good I get winded quicker so definitely before every workout I have my athletes take at least 500 milligrams of sodium that's a quarter teaspoon of salt or three thermo tabs which are just buffered salt tablets that are easy to swallow um, they'll do that 20 or 30 minutes before a training session. I, I travel with these salt tablets everywhere I go. If I'm flying on an airplane, I take them, I take them when I wake up in the morning, I take them before bed at night because they increase antidiuretic hormone, which prevents me from having to get up to pee. Is that something another. you'd
0: recommend for, for the majority of your clients? hundred percent.
1: Yeah. Because my clients are eating pretty clean. They don't eat fast food and they don't eat packaged food. And what was so the salt tablets called again? When, uh, the tabs is the salt sense. tablet that I use. I'll I'll check that one out. It's just convenient. It's just salt. You can go straight up with a quarter teaspoon of any salt, sea salt or table salt. One thing we didn't talk about that we should hit on really quickly here is that iodine is also extremely important for the thyroid gland um, and for uh, metabolism and the immune system. And people don't tend to get enough iodine, particularly those that work out because they sweat it out. And so I include... Cranberry juice, pure cranberry juice in my diet, but that can be hard to get some places. And iodized table salt is what I recommend to my clients. And I know that salt snobs don't like the fact that it's bleached or it has anti-caking agents in it. But the research suggests that there's there's really no downside to using a regular iodized table salt. And that something like a pink salt uh, or a sea salt might not be better for that reason because they don't have iodine in them. And if, uh, if you're not getting adequate iodine, this is what happens with these bikini girls. Then they end up getting hypothyroidism and their hair starts falling out. And so you have to have an iodine source in your diet. I don't care if it's, if it's, uh, from sea kelp or from cranberry juice or from iodized table salt, just understand that iodine is an important component. Uh, it's also more important than just thyroid function. So taking thyroid does not, uh remedy and iodine deficiency so, that's, <clears throat> so the salt.
0: that's quite a common thing i think and again since of carbohydrates where people are almost afraid of salt again because of the mainstream media i think
1: a hundred percent they are and and they shouldn't be uh salt is very safe uh, dr d nickel writes a book called the salt fix that goes in, it in great detail and i mentioned earlier the international society of sports nutrition Recommends all athletes take 500 milligrams of sodium before and after training. Because in terms terms of strength,
0: it has a big benefit in terms of strength output. Huge,
1: huge benefit. Endurance, stamina, recovery. You'll go to a gym and instead of having hitting the wall in 20, 30 minutes, you'll be running around an hour later looking for stuff to do. It's an enormous difference for your energy levels and your recovery. You'll feel fantastic. And dose it before and after. Uh, I had Camille LeBlanc and Ben Smith, CrossFit national champions, doing a 1,000 milligrams before and after each event when they competed in the national championships. Uh, and they actually, Camille actually gained a pound over the course of five days at the uh, CrossFit Games instead of historically having lost four or five pounds. But she was able to stay ahead of her hydration, and that's significant for performance. A guy like Lane Johnson for the Philadelphia Eagles, he sweats out five grams of sodium an hour. He was tested by Dr. Godick's group, the Heat Institute, uh, and they they found that he sweats out five grams an hour. You can't replace that uh, with food. You're going to have to add salt to your food, and you're going to have to take sodium supplements uh, if you're a, uh, an athlete that has that kind of sweat rate.
0: No, it's just fascinating. I think that's what, again, it's one of these small things that's often overlooked, which I think can make so much so much difference. Um, oh, it's huge. Do you have a recommendation you know, in terms of water intake as well. Where you look for people like, yeah, you know, the
1: here's the thing.
0: So the two go quite Doctors, hand in hand.
1: They, they kind of go together. Dr. Sandra Godick is, is a, a PhD and she runs the heat Institute. She's an expert in thermal regulation and hydration. And oddly enough, she recommends drink when you're thirsty of all things. We don't have <laughs> a, an amount per weight or whatever. Now, the International Society of Sports Nutrition suggests that uh, athletes, particularly young athletes who who aren't as good at, at paying attention to those things, drink about every 15 minutes throughout uh, exercise, and that could just mean that you bring a, a, a water bottle with you. Dehydration isn't necessarily a lack of water; it's it's a it's a lack of minerals and electrolytes. It's usually a sodium potassium issue. So. And you can actually dehydrate yourself, create what's called hyponatremia, low sodium, by drinking too much water. So if you're peeing clear, you're overdoing the water. If your only focus throughout the day is to drink that gallon of water that you're carrying around, but you don't have a specific plan for getting adequate sodium, then it could be counterproductive to you to just keep sucking down water all day and wondering why you still have a headache or you've got brain fog, and it's because you're low in sodium. And that uh, that dizziness that some people experience when they get off of the leg press and stand up, that's a sodium depletion. That's not, that's not water. It's not carbohydrates. That's uh, inadequate sodium. So dosing salt before a workout, you won't experience those kind of, that kind of lightheadedness. Even if your mom gets up from a seated position and stands up and gets lightheaded, that's a, a sodium depletion problem. And that can be remedied just by getting adequate salt on your food or uh, using sodium supplements as necessary
0: now obviously with you, with your own clients and with the um from we work with obviously you've got your own methodology of the vertical diet would you mind running us through that and how you set that up because that's it's just simple principles but I can see how logically effective it is and it's very it very- is
1: <laughs> you know we talked through a lot of that I build a foundation first I can't put a three-bedroom house on a two-bedroom foundation so whether you're a Hofdor Bjornsson you're 450 pounds or I work with a 97-pound professional ballet dancer for the Sacramento Ballet, they have the same biochemistry. They have the same physio- physiological demands. So I create this foundation of foods. And I talked about some of them, and we'll, we'll just summarize them here again. I start with a red meat, a lean red meat, because of the iron, the B12, and the zinc, because of the um, preferential fatty acid profile. The red meat's generally about a three-to-one omega-6 to omega-3, whereas chicken and um, turkey is 17 to 25 to one omega six to omega three red meat has a superior micronutrient profile and it's easy to digest.
0: Cause you always and favor red meat over a poultry, a chicken or turkey, don't you? Or
1: 100%. What? I never eat chicken. I never recommend chicken to any of my clients. I start with red meat. If they want to throw a chicken meal in there, great. But I'm, I'm focusing on a good, better, best scenario with my athletes and best is going to be the red meat, uh, salmon twice a week to get your omega threes. That's definitely a big, uh, uh, plus to get your omega threes i don't think that you should be trying to supplement omega threes to compensate for a huge omega-6 intake it, you can't be done it doesn't work that way and you still taking
0: omega-3 supplement anyway though
1: uh not if you're getting salmon twice a week if you're okay. not then you can take a little bit of krill and um oil or omega-3 if you want but i don't see much benefit to it beyond what can be provided most of the research that was done say on the inuits in alaska was done on their fish intake not on omega-3 supplements so yeah true uh, the challenge with me with omega-3 supplements is so many of them have already been oxidized through light or heat or processing. By the time you get them, I think there's very little benefit to most of them. It's been studied to a great degree. Some are better than others, I'm sure, but uh, you can probably uh, get your best benefit from eating a salmon. And then I jump in and I, I look for you know other micronutrient-dense foods. Obviously, the egg, as I mentioned earlier, the whole egg, don't take the yolk out. That's where all the choline and the biotin and the K2 is. So I have eggs in all my athletes' diets. Brian Shaw eats 36 whole eggs a day, six with each of six meals.
0: Six with each meal?
1: Six with each meal. And again, because he had fatty liver disease, I wanted to get adequate choline in him him to fix that problem, and now he doesn't. Uh, We remedied that. His blood sugars are better. Choline is a huge component of that, and B12 as well, Uh, and folate if you're going to tackle fatty liver disease effectively. So... (laughs) Once we get, and so people are concerned about two things, one cholesterol, and um, at least here in the U.S., the U.S. uh, Department of Agriculture and their dietary guidelines, they no longer um, identify eggs as a nutrient of concern with respect to cholesterol, and the cholesterol is not associated with cardiovascular disease unless uh, potentially you have a um, hypercholesteremia, which is an inherited uh, genetic uh, familial condition. So... Uh, he doesn't have that. We don't have that problem. And the studies that have been done on um, burn patients uh, eating 36 eggs a day because it's the, the nutrient that gives them the fastest uh, healing from their, uh, their injuries have shown that they don't have an increase in cholesterol. So 36 a day is where I have Thor. I don't recommend that for everyone, obviously, but I do put eggs in everyone's diet, including my, you know, 124 pound Nadia Wyatt getting ready for the Miss Olympia. She eats at least two whole eggs a day. I would never take a yolk out and throw some peanut butter in there for quote unquote healthy fats. A, because it's a terrible protein. B, because it's a high omega-6 fat. So I don't believe in the whole peanut butter, almond butter thing.
0: I think it's, it's just lazy. Um, Are you a fan of nuts as a source of fats generally or not, or not so much? You'd always go for eggs.
1: I think the fats are in your foods. I think they're in the red meat, which is over 50% monounsaturated fat, the healthy fat. And they're in your egg yolks, and they're in your fish, and they're in your yogurt. I think the fats are already in the foods. Your omega-3s are in the fish. Uh, some people like to uh, talk about using things like coconut oil or… Um, uh, mcto Yeah, olive oil or things like that. And I don't think you really need to to go there. I don't see any additional benefit beyond what's already in those great foods. uh, So long as you're getting all of them to an adequate amount. Well, then I'm chasing. So I've got my proteins, right? That's probably a gram per pound. Uh, Someone like Nadia dieting for a show at a calorie deficit and trying to work out, she might eat 1.2 grams per pound. And that's consistent with the ISSN's research. Somebody like Hawthorne or somebody who's trying to gain weight, I might only have them have 0.7 grams of protein per pound because protein's a high thermic effect, and it's very satiating, hard to eat enough calories when you're taking in too much protein. And the carbohydrates that I would be putting in an athlete that's trying to gain weight are protein-sparing, so they would would get all the benefit of of hypertrophy and muscle gain from 0.7 grams per pound without any of the potential drawbacks of, of poor appetite or fewer net calories from consuming too much protein. And I've made that mistake many times throughout my career where I thought adding more protein would make me bigger, but I'd end up losing weight because it's sure hard as hell to eat enough uh, lean protein, uh, and it's it's difficult to gain weight under that. So that's my proteins. My fats are in the proteins. Then we go to carbs. And again, I start with high potassium carbs, fruit. This this is
0: where your notorious Monster Mash comes
1: Yeah, the Monster Mash (laughs) But, right. and that's actually the next evolution. So, I'll hit, I, I get some fruit in there daily, we talked about earlier. I get some potatoes in there daily. Potatoes can be very satiating. And so, if I'm using those with the athletes that are trying to gain weight, the potato might go in the pre workout meal and it might go in the pre bedtime meal because then the satiating effects of those don't matter. Before a workout, you're not going to be eating for another four or five hours generally. And at nighttime, if you take in a potato, you're going to be sleeping for eight
0: hours. One, one question. What's your thoughts on, there's some research to suggest that, that um, depending on what part of the world you're from, like you have a genetic predisposition to certain food groups working better for you digestively. So, for example, I don't know if you're Asian, for example, rice, is from Eastern Europe, potatoes, that sort of thing. You, you know, on.
1: I haven't seen enough compelling research to suggest that people have a, I think that we're, We've adapted over a great many millennial that, that we can handle a whole host of foods. Yeah, the only thing curious. I really look out for, the, 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 the specific thing I look out for with my diet is that I stay with low FODMAP foods, uh, fermentable oligodye, monosaccharides, foods that cause a lot of gas and bloating, such as, say, uh, broccoli, uh, you know, cruciferous vegetables. I'd rather get low-gas vegetables like spinach uh, and uh, cucumber and squash uh, root tubers like carrots and potatoes, they tend to be uh, easier digested than some of those high gas vegetables. Uh, legumes can be hard to digest. I'm not saying they're bad for you, but in any significant quantity, and depending on how you prepare them and how much you eat, uh, you can end up with gas. Those get into the large intestine um, undigested, and they get you know, broken down by bacteria and turned into methane, and you're walking around bloated and gassy all the time. So I have to be careful of that with my athletes. That's why I'm not big on lots of grains, even oatmeal or, or bread, uh, because they can be harder to digest. And again, it's, it's individualistic and dose-dependent, it's how much you eat and how they're prepared. Sourdough bread will be easier to digest. Um, An oatmeal that's been soaked and fermented overnight using, say, some yogurt or apple cider vinegar will be much easier to digest. But I can't put three or four cups of oatmeal in a big athlete multiple days in a row and expect them not to have gut problems and digestion problems uh, i saw that with um, one of my athletes recently a dietician had recommended he eat four cups of quinoa a day Jesus. He, he couldn't do it and i'm like yeah no shit your dietitian <laughs> has tried that yeah, literally Sometimes you read things in a book or you put them in a chronometer and they look good on paper but um that kind of gets us down to the monster mash there are things that uh, are easier to eat than others and when you take a, a use a like a ground bison and you mash it up with some white rice and put a little bone broth in there and eat that, it's really easy on the stomach. And if you're an athlete that has to take, again, five, six, seven thousand 7,000 calories a day, or even if you're an individual that has a history of digestion problems, IBS and a host of other potential, uh, you know, Crohn's disease, et cetera, when you're given foods that are easy on the gut, so the gut can start to repair itself. And it becomes easier to eat, you know. Then eventually, add more and more foods. Would you ever so
0: supplement with glutamine because that's supposed to be helpful for in terms of repairing gut health? Or you, you're you more of a whole foods man?
1: The, the thing about glutamine, there isn't much research to suggest it's beneficial. It's it's the most abundant amino acid in the body, and it's in all of your protein sources. So, uh, as of yet, no, I don't I don't see I think that the big thing with gut problems is, is to take away the source of the problem. Yeah, I'm the trying re- the to... The inflammatory Yeah, I'm just being really cautious with the things that typically aggravate your stomach. And I'm looking at the acidity of the stomach. If people are taking antacids, they're setting themselves up for a lot of problems, the least of which is digestion problems, the most of which is nutrient deficiencies um, because you don't have good absorption of your minerals and electrolytes. So <laughs> I'm really cautious about trying to make sure sometimes I might even supplement uh, for some people an HCL pepsin mostly just to get their stomach acid uh, to get more acid and to get the pH down low enough to where they're actually uh, effectively digesting their food. And even something as simple as chewing the food better can have a significant impact on people who have recurring problems with uh, acid reflux. So I am paying attention to those things. I do want good gut health first and foremost and everything else seems to take care of itself.
0: Cool. Awesome. And um, is there any other diet tips from the vertical diet you think you can add to that before we start wrapping this up? I don't want to keep you too long, so now we're, we're running over just over an hour now already. No, I think that's
1: the bulk of it. I think we hit on it. Finding easy-to-digest foods that are highly nutrient-dense and bioavailable. Um, I think that's the big thing, and to make sure and, and get uh, uh, you know be organized and consistent with it because when you have to start picking up stuff from restaurants or airports etc uh, i think that you're just going to continue doing damage to your to your digestion
0: i do agree and um, one final tip obviously you, you yourself are an incredibly busy businessman and uh come from a corporate background having been highly successful what would be the biggest tip you would give to anyone who's struggling trying to manage everything uh, in terms of training diet because that's the main excuse i hear from most people
1: yeah well we touched on a little bit of a getting organized meal prep is a monster you save money you save time Adequate Sleep, you cannot be burning the candle at both ends because it used just be more effective. We talked about stress and how I view it as a weight. And if you're doing your 10-minute walks three times a day and you're prepping your meals and you're sleeping adequately, you find that you have more time because you're organized.
0: you got control.
1: Uh, yes. And then I think people overemphasize how much time and energy they have to pour into their uh, nutrition and training. The meal prep is simple. It saves you time and money. As for exercise, uh, cardio is not a good way to lose weight, and it's been studied. You take a group that's dieting and a group that's dieting and doing cardio, there's very little difference between the two. So This idea that you need to commit 40 minutes of your day to a treadmill or what have you, uh, I think that the return on that investment is very small, and that's been researched. So. Uh, utilize something that's simple and sustainable and and fits in your work schedule, such as the 10-minute walks. I think that's a huge boon for most people. Contributes. I think it gives you a big return on your investment. Uh, Exercise is great for health, but exercise for losing weight is not uh, a great way to invest your time. Uh, You want to control your nutrition to lose weight. 98% of weight loss happens in the kitchen, so you want to be more disciplined in terms of meal prep. And then lastly, the training components. People get frustrated because they don't think they can work out enough or they have to uh, you know, put too many hours into the gym. Nothing could be further from the truth. You need to work out each body part twice a week is optimal. You need to get a minimum of about five sets per workout per body part. So you could do a full body workout on Monday and Friday, and you could go in and do five sets of squats superset with five sets of hamstring curls, and then go do over five sets of dips with five sets – Supersetted with five sets of chin-ups. That in itself would be enough, not only to maintain but to gain, if the intensity was sufficient enough. Mm-hmm. And you could do that entire workout in forty minutes twice a week.
0: And uh, get, get awesome results.
1: results. Oh, and get fantastic results. I, there's been many times over the last couple of years where that's all I've been able to do. And you see me on Instagram. I'm still able to to squat over six hundred pounds regularly for reps. Uh, so. It's not because I'm putting more hours in the gym. I'm putting in less, smarter hours. I get people that have huge, that are busy schedules. They work, say they're a doctor or a nurse, and they've got you know, Monday through Friday, they're working these 12, 14-hour shifts. I'll have them do like a full-body workout on Wednesday night, the one I just described, squat hamstring uh, superset with a dip chin-up superset. And then on weekends, I'll have them split, do a split they're off on Saturday and Sunday, and they're rested, and they're well-fed, so I'll have them do a, a back Saturday morning, chest Saturday night, uh, squats Sunday morning, deadlift Sunday night, and those are only 40-minute sessions. I'm not asking them to be in there for two and a half hours each session, and, if, and that would be an advanced program for a busy individual who wanted to get everything they could out of their training but had a, uh, you know, a high work demand.
0: No, it's, um, that's, it's just clever programming and being efficient with what you're doing is what, what makes the biggest difference. I think that's hugely insightful. I think, again, it just proves if you've got the right mindset, you can achieve anything you want to achieve. You just have to have the why of why you're training and why you're trying to diet in the first place, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I just think that you need to create a schedule that that works rather than setting up these expectations that are unsustainable. It yeah, I some give somebody sense. a a 40 minute treadmill a day. How long is that going to happen for, you know, give that to a housewife who's got kids and a job and everything else. You're doing them a disservice, making them even think that that's necessary, let alone sustainable.
0: No, hundred percent agree. I'm just agree. That's some wonderful advice there to finish off with Stan. So I really, really appreciate having you on the podcast today. So thank you so much. Uh, more info about you and obviously your meal prep businesses and some of the other bits and pieces you do.
1: Yeah. Well, all of it's at Uh I have my vertical Diet digital download, the vertical diet 3.0, which goes over everything we discussed. And I have over 200 scientific references for peer reviewed published research, along with articles and videos from all of the professionals in the industry that uh, that helps take a deeper dive into the things that we talked about. That's all part of the vertical diet 3.0. But that's all at stanefferding.com. Stan is my Instagram and Stan Efferding is my YouTube. And I have a lot of rants on there that discuss a lot of the things that you and i just talked about today that are uh, i think
0: fun to listen to yeah i'm a big big fan of those so um, i have watched a fair few of them which is where i've already gathered some of the initial information so i really really appreciate that but um,
1: awesome thanks brother appreciate thank it. you so
0: much for, for today stan we'll, we'll wrap it up there so really really appreciate it and if you don't already guys check out stan and give him a follow on instagram and youtube awesome my friend thanks for having me pleasure